I was listening to a podcast this week, as I do at times, and they had a tech writer, one of the main tech writers for BuzzFeed, was featured on this podcast that I listened to. He had just written a uh, pretty dark piece about, uh, he, he had talked to one of those titans of the tech industry, I forget the name of the person he wrote the piece about, I'm, I'm bad, Ovid, it had a O. Um, but it was a pretty dark piece about where tech is going. I, I mean, over the last couple of years, you know, uh, maybe there's been a, 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 we've been consumed to a degree by a conversation, particularly in regards to the last American election, about fake news and its influence on us. And um, this, the guy he interviewed was actually the guy who warned everyone about the coming onslaught of fake news. And now he is warning people about even how the tech is advancing right now to the point where um, the, the artificial intelligence systems behind some of this tech is such that you could feed into a computer video and uh, audio of, you know, take for example Barack Obama's speeches. You just feed into a computer all of his speeches, his words, his vocabulary, his mannerisms, and the computer, the artificial intelligence of the computer is becoming such that it could spit out basically whatever he wanted Barack Obama to say, he could say. And it would be so realistic to our naked eye watching a video on, say, YouTube that we would have no idea that this is a manufactured video. And so the, 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 the scary part of this article and then this podcast was about, man, when this onslaught of fake, not just fake news, but fake reality comes, our human brains are not prepared for it. Our systems are not prepared for what's coming. And he created a term that may be new to many of us. He said the real danger of this is not that we will be misled. The real danger of this is the term that he called reality apathy, which is not just that we'll be misled, but that we'll be so skeptical. We'll be so cynical that we'll become apathetic of reality itself because we will be training ourselves not to trust anything. Training ourselves not to trust our eyes, not to trust our ears. And, and basically, this, uh, his, the conversation was about what, what are we going to do as a society when we just stop investigating, stop thinking, stop reading, or stop searching for truth? What happens when everything around us is fake news? Scary. As Christians, this, we're not going to be immune to this. Uh, but I do believe that we do have a bit of an opportunity here. I mean, I was talking to a guy in the coffee shop as I was preparing my message today, and we were talking about this. And he could see, he agreed with me about the hopelessness of this situation and this scenario. But as Christians, I do think we have a bit of an opportunity here. Because we believe in things that are not subject to modern manipulation. While modern, you know, the modern news, news cycle deals with days, if not hours, as Christians, we believe things that are grounded in millennia. We deal in centuries and generations. And I believe that there's a bedrock of truthfulness about the Christian faith that actually can be easily investigated and thus provide an anchor post of truth in this world of fake news. 
And we talked, this guy was talking about the coffee shop, we had a long conversation about the need to develop critical thinking skills. The, and also about the need to, not, to actually listen to opposing arguments and not just shout them down. And he said, it was funny, this guy was not a Christian, he was not part of a church, but he said, I, I'm glad that at least someone in our culture, and I'm glad that it, 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 it he actually said it restores my faith in humanity that in churches you are teaching people to think. And I'm like, well, we're trying to. So I'm glad you're here, and over the, that, that's kind of what we're hoping to do in this series that I'm going to be starting today, and it's going to be going through Easter, four weeks, and the series is titled, is it up here? Yeah, yeah. The series is titled, Did Jesus Really? Did he really? Is, is there grounding intellectual grounding for our faith. It's not that we can argue ourselves or prove our faith to anyone. That's why it is called the faith. But is it intellectually um, reasonable to believe that Jesus really did do the things that we claim he did, that he really did live and did claim to be God and did die on the cross and did, in fact, on Easter we'll be talking about, did rise from the dead. And so today's exploration is going to kick us off, did Jesus really live? Now, to a degree, I didn't even know if I should take on this question. Because if you read any historians, generally speaking, you'll, you'll read, it won't be long until you read something to say, you know, this is nearly unanimous, nearly all actual, actual historians believe it's indisputable that Jesus actually lived as a historical person. But as you know, we all are confronted with the internet. And so I thought I would do something different today, not preach the way I normally do. Usually we go through books of the Bible, or I will go through a passage as I teach here in the church. But today I thought I would try something different. And if you don't like the way I approach it today, don't worry, this series is only four weeks long. Um, but today what I thought I would do is I'm actually going to go to an internet site, and I'm going to be doing, uh, what is this called, fact-checking? I'm going to be the fact, how many of you guys have heard of Snopes? That's what we're going to do here today. We're going to be kind of Snopes to this internet site, okay? And I'm going to read part of this. And the reason why I chose this site wasn't because its arguments were different or easier than any other arguments. I chose it for a couple reasons. Uh, number one is because if you do a Google search on the historicity of Jesus, you'll get a lot of hits. And some of those hits, as a Christian even, or as a youth, or as a young adult, you'll read and you'll be like, oh, this is, a, this is an article... Did Jesus exist from atheist.org? And you'll go, okay, well, hmm, that's probably not going to be balanced. Or you'll read an article that says, did Jesus exist? And it'll be from, you know, christianapologetics.org. And you'll say, okay, well. But I chose this one because this website, I, didn't, I wasn't too familiar with it. But it was one that I thought that maybe some of you would come across as you're researching things. And you might say, okay, well, this looks like a, a pretty academically rigorous uh, website. In fact... Uh, the website is called The Conversation. Their tagline is Academic Rigor, Journalistic Fair. And in fact, to write to this website, to actually provide content to this website, you have to be at least enrolled in a PhD program. Okay? And so this is an article weighing up the evidence for the historical Jesus, written by Raphael Letaster. He's a tutor in religious studies at the University of And so I wish it wasn't March break, because I wish we had more of our youth here. Because these are the sort of websites that you'll look for as you're searching, as you have a friend at school who challenges, well, Jesus didn't really live, and you go on Google, this is the sort of website that you'll read and you'll say, oh, academic rigor, great, let's read it. 
But I want to do a little fact-checking with this this morning. And, okay, so the reason I got in that, full disclosure, the reason I got into that conversation with that guy at the coffee shop as I was preparing my sermon is because I was reading this website, and, you know, I can't help myself. I sometimes uh, let things out. And so I was reading this, and I went, ugh, <laughs> loudly in the coffee shop. And the guy goes, what are you reading? And I said, do you ever read something on the internet that's so ridiculous it just causes you to lose your faith in humanity? And that's where we got into this conversation. And I showed him some of the, 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 the statements in this website. Now, some of them are, we're gonna, I'm going to actually say are true. But some of the implications the guy brings out of these, I, I just said, look, and I showed the guy sitting next to me, I said, I can show you three Bible passages. And I showed him these Bible passages, and he looked back at what the guy wrote and said, well, that's just a lie. And I said, yeah. So we're going to try to dissect this a little bit and, uh, and, and think critically about some of the claims that are being made. And I want to do this for you because you need to learn to do this on your own. Okay? Let's just take as we go. Uh, he says, for example, after he starts out with his introduction and, and he says, well, there's not much we can know. He says, the first problem we encounter when trying to discover more about the historical Jesus is the lack of early sources. The earliest sources only reference the clearly fictional Christ of faith. So first, regarding the lack of early sources, I'm going to actually say true. You got this right. You know, as far as the lack of early sources, I think I would say true. It is true that there is a lack of early sources about the life of Christ. Yet, for a person of Jesus' relative stature in the Roman Empire, it's exceptional that we have multiple early attestations to his existence, both by those who claim to know him or others who knew him, like they knew others who knew Jesus, or, and by historians hostile to the Christian movement. I mean, the first problem we encounter when trying to determine the historicity of anyone who lived before, say, modern records were kept is the lack of early sources. Simply put, how many of you guys know the names of your great-great-grandparent? These are pretty important to your family. You don't know. Unless your grand... I have a friend whose grandfather invented the yield sign. Like the triangle yield sign? That was a claim to fame. So he knew that grandparent. But most of us know very little about even the people in our own family line. The great majority of people in history pass into obscurity very quickly after they die. It, particularly if you're speaking before the onset of any sort of modern or even today digital records would be, would be kept. If we were to take an objective look at the number of early sources attesting to the existence of Jesus, we must honestly, we, we should as Christians be honest and say, yeah, yeah, that's right, there's not many sources. Like, I would admit that there are other people from Jesus' era that we have greater historical attestation. But generally, the people who we have greater attestation for are kings and Caesars and generals and politicians whose faces are on coins. And that's about it. What's surprising about the life of Jesus is not the lack of early sources, but that there are any early sources at all. Jesus wasn't in his lifetime a famous person. And he wasn't living near the center of the world, which was Rome. Uh, imagine, if you will, uh, there's a teacher living up in 
in Whitehorse, right? And he stages a political protest up in Whitehorse, and the local authorities deal with him. Okay, well, maybe that gets into the Ottawa citizen the next day. But no one writing a history of Canada 80 years from now, that, that guy's name's not going to come up. To the Roman living in Rome, the center of the empire, the life of Jesus would have been insignificant, except for the impact he had on his followers. And so what's amazing is not that we don't have a lot of sources about him, it's amazing we have any at all. Jesus lived in 30 years, basically in 30 years, in complete anonymity as a carpenter's son in a small town in the middle of nowhere. His public ministry lasted for only, people think, two to three years, and he was put to death as a disturber of the peace by local authorities. With that biography in mind, it's astounding that he stands behind only a few Caesars and political leaders in regards to the number of sources attesting to his life. For me to say, yes, there are other people that there's greater attestation for, and they are kings, actually is quite an amazing statement to say about the historical attestation we have about this carpenter's son from Nazareth. Let's look at the other claim. The earliest sources only reference the fictional history, uh, sorry, the... Uh, the clearly fictional Christ of faith. The claim is that if you read the early Christian writings, they knew nothing of the Jesus of history. They knew nothing and they were not concerned with the historical Jesus. And that is the claim to which I scoffed. Specifically, uh, he writes later in the article, Paul's epistles in the Gospels give us no reason to dogmatically declare that Jesus must have existed. Avoid, yeah, thank you for that. <laughs> I heard Avoiding Jesus' earthly events and teaching, even when the latter could have bolstered his own claims, Paul only describes his heavenly Jesus. Even when discussing what appears to be the resurrection of the Last Supper, his only stated direct revelations from the Lord and his indirect revelations from the Old Testament. In fact, Paul actually rules out human sources. So it's claimed, and this is a new claim, it's, it's, it's developed by a man named Richard Carrier, who's also, he's an American academic. He's a young guy, about 47, which is young for an academic. He's about the only serious intellectual academic scholar in the world who, 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 who tries to make a case for the non-heristicity of Jesus. But he has his followers, of, which, of whom uh, the writer of this article is one. But his thought is that, that, that Paul only was concerned with a cosmic Jesus a kind of a savior in the heavenlies, never concerned with a historical man, and that after Paul described and developed the Christian faith about this cosmic Jesus, then later, decades later, generations later, the church came around and put flesh on what Paul had described. Is this true? Uh, no, it's ridiculously false. So Paul wrote 13 letters of the New Testament of which seven of which are completely undisputed, which means although we as Christians believe that Paul wrote all 13, and I think the evidence is there to, 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 to bolster that claim, that he wrote all letters attributed to him, in skeptical scholarly circles, some people don't believe that he wrote all of those 13 letters, some believe, but, but no one disputes that he wrote these seven. In these undisputed seven letters of Paul, makes, Paul makes... Numerous claims to the historicity of Jesus. That no one would deny that these are Paul's letters, and let's look at what he writes in some of them. In Galatians chapter 1, 
Paul reveals, after he himself had, yes, received a vision of the risen Lord Jesus, so he does get some information from Jesus through Revelation, but he makes the point to say in Galatians 1, after I received these visions, I went to those who were eyewitnesses of Jesus, and I matched up what Jesus told me with what their personal experience of Jesus was. So he says in Galatians chapter 1, after three years, notice how important chronology and details are to Paul here. After three years, I went up, so time, I went up to place, Jerusalem, to visit a person, Cephas, known as, on other parts of the New Testament, as Peter, known as one of the main disciples of Jesus, and remained with him for another time, marker, 15 days. But I saw none of the other apostles, again, those followers of Jesus, except James, the Lord's brother. So Paul is, for a person who purports to not be interested in history, Paul's speaking a lot of times, dates, and places here, and people. Most importantly, Paul reports that he met with James, the Lord's brother. Now, you've heard me speak of this man before, Bart Ehrman. He is a skeptic. He does not believe in Jesus. He is an atheist, possibly an agnostic at best. He used to be uh, a professing Christian, and he turned away from the faith, and now he's agnostic. He writes a lot of books about, the, the, about history and early church history. And he has written a whole book defending the historicity of Jesus. And in, in his uh, article that he wrote for the Huffington Post, of all places, he, uh, he writes one of the best lines I've ever heard in this debate. I love this line. He says, uh, you know, Paul acquired his information within a couple years of Jesus' life and who actually knew firsthand Jesus' close disciple Peter and his own brother James. And I love this line. If Jesus did not exist, you would think his brother would know it. Right? Generally speaking, James would have been the one who has been like, yeah, well, you keep on calling me the brother of Jesus. Don't you understand that Jesus is just this cosmic character? No, you, you know if you've got a brother. And Paul says, I met with that same brother. Paul writes with the understanding that he's passing on a historical report from eyewitness attesting again to the Jesus of history. In 1 Corinthians 15.3, Paul writes, I delivered to you as a first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the scripture, that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas and then to the twelve, and then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James and then to all the apostles. Now what Richard Carrier and what this person will do with that is say, see, Paul says, I, I received this knowledge through revelation and from the scriptures. Nothing about historical people. I don't know too much about what the reading comprehension is, but Paul seems to be literally saying, these are the people you could ask if you don't believe me. They're still alive. In fact, in the rest of this chapter, 1 Corinthians 15, which we'll look over again, obviously, more in depth on Easter, Paul makes the statement that the entire Christian faith rests on the historicity of the resurrection. And the historicity of the resurrection, guess what? Rests on the historicity of Jesus being a real historical person. His entire case, it's not just one verse, his entire case, his entire argument spanning the entire chapter is built on and based upon the historical reality of who Jesus is and what he has done. And Paul says, if it didn't happen, we have no faith. And he's saying, I received this from those who were there with him. 
in other places. Paul reveals more that he knows about the life of the historical Jesus. He, he knows which teachings specifically originate from him. There's a passage in 1 Corinthians 7 where he's talking about marriage and Paul makes a distinction about the, the teaching he's giving as an apostle and the teaching that the Lord actually had given. And if you read, it's these teachings that the Lord specifically speaks about in the gospel. And so Paul's making a distinction here between here's what I'll give you as a wise apostle of Christ, but I make a distinction of these are the words that Christ taught while he was with us. At other times in the New Testament, Paul uh, speaks of Jesus, um, where am I? Being born of a woman, born under law. In Romans 1.3, Paul speaks that he's descended from David and then actually makes the statement, descended a date from David according to, well, where'd it go? There it is. Descended from David according to the flesh. Paul makes that clear. I'm talking about a real man who is a real descendant of David according to human flesh and bones. And so to make the claim that Paul knew nothing and cared nothing for the heresy of Jesus is just simply, it's, it's a lie. And, and the reason I bring this up is I want to show you that even on an academic looking website, the, these are the verses I showed that man in the coffee shop and he can read them in black and white and say, well, that's just simply not true. Be careful what you read on the internet. A spoiler alert to those who are under 30. Not everything you read on the internet is real. You know that. I know that. I'm just kidding. Let's talk about the Gospels, because that's where the author of our piece goes next. He says about the Gospels, these early sources compiled decades after the alleged events all stem from Christian authors eager to promote Christianity, which gives us reason to question them. The authors of the Gospels fail to name themselves fail to describe their qualifications or show any criticism with their foundational sources, which they also fail to identify. So again, there's some truth to this. Yes, it's true that gospel writers write decades later and were eager to promote Christianity. Let's talk about that. Eager to promote Christianity. This could be said about anyone who's writing history. There, there's no history written without bias. You could make the case that Tacitus, for example, is a Roman historian. Tacitus had stake, was a stakeholder in the imperial Roman cult. He's writing his history trying to demonstrate who the Caesars were and why they should be revered. Nobody throws out their histories because they were stakeholders in the system. If we did that, we would have to throw out all historical writings. It, today, we might have you know, some historians that do this because they get a, a nice grant at a university. But back then, the people who were commissioned to write historians usually were stakeholders in the systems they're writing about. Right? Tacitus and Josephus, who I'm going to mention later, were two of the greatest historians of the ancient world. They were both commissioned by the Caesars to write their histories. We don't take what they write and say, oh, well, bias, throw it out. That's not how you do history. And so if we are to, to hold that double standard to the gospel writers, we have to throw out all history of the ancient world. And then while it's true that the authors of the gospel fail to name themselves, which seems to be merely a convention of genre, like nobody would name themselves, you didn't do that, at least two of them do in fact give their qualifications to write about the life of Jesus. John, for example, speaks as an eyewitness. 
Luke, we're going to read what Luke says about his qualifications in a little bit. But this claim that I was reading here, it just blew my mind. He says, they don't, they don't interact, how did he put it? He does, they don't show any criticism with their foundational sources, which they also fail to identify. That blows my mind. No one in the ancient world identified their sources. I, what, what disciplines are you guys studying in university? What do you use? You use MLA? Do you use Turabian? Do you use Chicago style? How do, you, how do you cite your sources? Which one do you use? APA. APA. I forgot about APA. That's the one. So in my, I didn't use APA. You guys are in sciences, I guess. Um, I, don't, I don't know which ones to use. But, but in modern, when, when you're writing a paper today, you, you cite your sources using one of those forms, right? No one in the ancient world was using APA. For, for, just to say an ancient writer doesn't cite his sources, therefore we throw them out. What? There's an entire discipline of, of, uh, of New Testament studies and Old Testament studies called form criticism, where you try to see what sources were being used by the authors of Scripture. And you can, you can build that study around it because the authors of Scriptures did interact critically with the sources they used. But I can demonstrate this even more clearly if you just read the first four, chapter, four verses of the Gospel of Luke, for example. Where Luke says, inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word and have delivered them to us, it seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, that you may have certainty concerning the things that you have been taught. Here, Luke clearly demonstrates knowledge of other writings about Jesus. He reveals a critical interaction with his sources. He explains his methodology in corroborating with eyewitnesses. Uh, Luke also writes a book of Acts and reveals a personal familiarity with Paul, Peter, and the brothers of Jesus. And Luke is regarded as one of the finest historians of the ancient world. He's giving his source material. He's giving his credentials. And he's showing that he is an historian of first rank. So let's have none of this nonsense about the authors of Scripture having little knowledge or concern for the Jesus of history. Anyone making that claim only reveals their own bias in dealing with the texts. Now, when you're talking to your friend, they might be like, yeah, but you're still using the Bible. I understand that's how these conversations go. And so... Where am I? Sorry. Oh, here it was. So no matter how much you point out the Bible contains sufficient historical attestation of the life of Jesus, some will still write it off. And so that's, that's where the, the article goes. And let's look at where it goes here. He writes, let's talk about outside of the Bible. He writes, little can be gleaned from the few non-biblical and non-Christian sources with only Roman scholar Josephus and historian Tacitus having any reasonable claim to be writing about Jesus within 100 years of his life. This is staggeringly false, or at least misleading. We are told that only Joseph and Tacitus mentioned Jesus, sure. I'll grant him that, even though Jesus and Christians are mentioned in other ancient writings. But to say that we only have Tacitus and Josephus, and therefore little can be gleaned, is ridiculous. These were the two most significant Roman and Jewish historians of antiquity. This would be like being in a debate 
with a friend about the definition of a word, and your friend saying, well, the only dictionaries that show that definition are Merriam-Webster's and the Oxford English Dictionary. Okay, what's your point? You're saying the only authorities are the two best authorities we have? You're arguing against yourself at that point. For my money, Tacitus's attestation is most convincing, not only because he is universally recognized as a skill as a historian, but he had a job. He, he had a day job. As he was writing history, he had a day job. Do you know what his day job was? His day job was he was a priest in a sect of the Roman religion that investigated false religious origins. This was Tacitus's job. His hobby was writing history, and he's, he's considered one of the best historians in the ancient world, but his job was to investigate the origins of religion. And he had the weight of the Roman imperial cult behind him, meaning he had access to sources that are lost to history now. And Tacitus writes about Jesus, in fact, he's writing about events in the 60s, about Nero, who is blaming the Christians for a fire that happened in Rome. It says, therefore, to put down the rumor, Nero substitute as culprits and punished the most unusual ways those hated for their shameful acts, whom the crowd called Christians. The founder of this name, Christ, or Christus, he uses the word Christus in Greek. In Latin translations, it talks of Christus. The founder of this name, Christ, had been executed in the reign of Tiberius by the procurator Pontius Pilate. Suppressed for a time, the deadly superstition erupted again, not only in Judea, the origin of this evil, but also in the city, Rome, where all things horrible and shameful from everywhere come together and become popular. That's a great testimony of Rome there. <laughs> but Tacitus is not friendly toward Christians by any means. But he confirms that this Crestus, as he called him, was executed in time and place history in the reign of Tiberius by the procurator Pontius Pilate and that a religious movement in his name erupted after his death or after the, the movement was quashed for a time, it says. The reference to Pontius Pilate is very important. As I said, it's, it's reasonable to believe that Tacitus actually had access to Roman legal documents that have been lost to history. Many scholars, we, we, we wouldn't stand, scholars wouldn't stand on that statement, but it's reasonable to assume that Tacitus had the weight of the Roman office behind him, and that was his day job. Josephus, the greatest Jewish historian of the ancient world, who, who actually was a Jewish man who wrote history for the Romans, mentions Jesus twice, two chapters apart from each other in a book called The Antiquities. Chapter 20, no one there's no debate, there's no dispute at all about chapter 20. So we're going to go to chapter 20 first. Chapter 20, this is what Josephus writes in chapter 20. And he's writing about uh, Ananus. And again, this is in the 60s. He's writing back about at the end of the first century. He says, being this kind of person, Ananus, thinking that he had a favorable opportunity because Festus had died and Albinus was still on his way, called a meeting of the judges, or literally the Sanhedrin, and brought into it the brother of Jesus who is called Messiah, James by name, and some others. He made the accusation that they had transgressed the law, and he handed them over to be stoned. Notice that Josephus is not elaborating about this. He is just reporting history. And he's reporting James as his historical person, the brother of Jesus. This is a skeptical, 
distance account of a trial, including someone directly connected to Jesus. And again, Josephus is not favorably disposed to Jesus, but records the account as a historian. No other details about James or Jesus are given here to provide a context, which means either two things. There's no context given in this passage. So it means either one of two things. Either James and Jesus were so well known that Josephus didn't even have to give a context in his writing, which would support the historicity. Or maybe we got to read Josephus a little bit more carefully to see is there anything else that is said either about James or Jesus in Josephus. Well, either one would support the historicity argument. But go back, we can go back two chapters, to chapter 18 of Antiquities. And this is what is written. Now, I've shaded out some of the lines of the text, and I'll explain that in a little bit. I'll read it, but notice that some of them are shaded out. He says, around this time, Jesus, a wise man, if indeed one ought to call him a man. For he was one who did surprising deeds and a teacher of such people as accept the truth gladly. He won over many Jews and many of the Greeks. He was the Messiah. When Pilate, upon hearing him, accused by men of the highest standing among us, had condemned him to be crucified, those who in the first place came to love him did not give up their affection for him. For on the third day he appeared to them restored to life. The prophets of God had prophesied this and countless other marvelous things about him. And the tribe of Christians so called after him have still to this day not died out. Now I shaded out some of the lines of the text not, I didn't shade those out because they are textually disputed. Every Greek manuscript of Josephus that we have found has this text in its entirety. But the reason that some scholars would say we should shade out part of that is because Josephus in his life and in his writings never reveals himself to be a Christian. He, he, he reveals himself to be Jewish through and through. And the thought is, even though we don't have any manuscript evidence that would shade out any of these words. The thought is these words are so amazingly and impressively and exhaustively, you know, lifting up Jesus as being more than a man that there's no way Josephus could have written them. And so many historians today say, we don't know how this got in there, and we don't have any evidence that there's any other documents that don't have it in there, but, but okay, let's just, let's just remove some of those words in, in a sense arbitrarily because we don't like the implication. But even if we grant them that, look at what is left. Even if we grant them the left, this is what we are left with. with. With what is left there, we are left with the two most substantial, most significant historians of the ancient world making and attesting these you know, seven things about Jesus. Together, taken together with Tacitus, this is what we have from outside of the Bible, from the two most important historians of the ancient world. Jesus existed as a historical figure, his personal name was Jesus, but that he was called Christos in Greek. He had a brother named James who was executed in the 60s. He won over both Jews and Greeks to his cause. I think we got there. The Jewish leaders of his day expressed unfavorable opinions about him. The, pure, the pure, you know, Pilate rendered the decision that he should be executed and that his execution was specifically by crucifixion. And that he inspired a movement of people bearing his name that spread across the empire, becoming burdensome, so burdensome to Nero that he blames them for the fires in Rome. These are the two greatest historians in the ancient world, outside of the Bible, giving attestation 
All of the above is consistent with the facts of Jesus' life recorded in the writings of Paul, the Gospels, and the other New Testament documents, all of which claim to be saying, we saw him, we heard him, we are here testifying to what this man Jesus has done. Now let's put this all together, so what? Oh, I forgot to put that in. You can read that as I go. So what? Number one, the historical evidence of Jesus Christ is unprecedented in the ancient world. For a man who was a wandering rabbi in Whitehorse, no, in Nazareth, Galilee, for a man who's a wandering rabbi to have this sort of main historians of the day testify and giving attestation of his life, his ministry, and his death, and his following is unprecedented. But that's not the emphasis of the New Testament. The emphasis of the New Testament is not in arguing for his existence. In fact, it's assumed in the New Testament. It, it lays behind all these passages. They only speak to it when there's a question of, of did, the, did the resurrection actually happen? And Paul's like, yes, it did in history, or none of this matters. It's assumed, but, but most of the New Testament is not taken up in arguing for his existence like I've done today. That's why I don't preach a message like this every week. Most of the New Testament is concerned with explaining the significance of his life, of his death, and of his resurrection. And the, uh, oh, sorry. And that's where I would take you to. This is John writing a, a letter that we call 1 John. This is John who in his Gospels claims to be an eyewitness to all these things. You can see it right here. That which was from the beginning which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and touched with our hands concerning the word of life. John starts out his gospel by speaking of Jesus being the word of God, the Son, eternal word of God, having come and lived among us. And so he says, we saw him, we heard him, we touched him, we, we looked upon him, and this life was made manifest, and we have seen it, and we testify to it, and we proclaim to you the eternal life which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. That which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you, so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. That is the concern of Scripture. I, I want to do this series because I want to equip you at least with some historical arguments. Did Jesus really live? Did he really claim to be God? Did he really die? Did he really rise again from the dead? If you're here as a Christian and you sometimes doubt those questions of your faith, or you've been in university and you've been challenged by that, or you don't know how to articulate these things, I want to model for you and help you in learning how to do that. That's why I'm doing this series. But if you're here today and you're not yet a Christian, I want you to understand that the, the, the actual, what is actually at issue is not simply that Jesus, a man, lived as a historical person. The issue is this, that in him is life. That he is, the, as John says, as, as the disciples who were Jewish people, who, who were not into making this claim that anyone other than Yahweh, God, is God, because that would be blasphemy. These Jewish followers of Jesus saw his life, saw that it was so significant, and says, in Jesus, God has come among us. That there's a significance to this life. That in him, in Jesus, was life eternal. And that life became our light, is what John says in John chapter 1. And so they're saying, I'm writing to this, attesting to the historicity of Jesus Christ, not so you can say, 
well, that's neat. And not so that you can win an argument, but that you may have fellowship with us. And our fellowship is not just, hey, we can gather around this, but our fellowship is with God and with His Son, Jesus Christ. If you're here today and you've been struggling with the historicity of Christ, if you're here today and you're struggling with, can I really believe this stuff in the Bible? Did it really happen? I hope to help you in that, you know, in that search over the next four weeks. But let me tell you, this is, not, this is about life and it's about death. It's about the reason that God sent his son into the world is that we had all rebelled against him. And in our rebellion, we actually had opposed his justice such that we were under his wrath. But God sent his son in the world not to condemn it, but to rescue it, to redeem it, to, to demonstrate both his justice on the cross and his love and his grace of forgiveness. So if you're here today, that's my hope. That, that at least you'd be awakened to start searching the scriptures to see whether these things be so. And in doing so, that you would have fellowship with us through the living God.